0: Bibles, so is the 2nd Chronicles chapter 27, 2nd Chronicles chapter 27, we're going to go through chapters 27 and 28, 27 is a very short chapter, it's only 9 verses, but it's, um, it's entitled from God to God's, little g. From King Jotham, who it says prepared his ways before the Lord his God, here in chapter 27, verse 6, to King Ahaz, who, molded, who made molded images for the Baals in chapter 28, verse 2, we see the contrast of a man of God and a man who served gods. And it was a terrible setback. What a terrible end result. What foolishness on Ahaz's behalf. Ahaz was Jotham's son. The only way you can go down, only way you can go when you're serving gods and not the true and living God is down. Let's begin with chapter 27 verse 1. And it says Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, verse 2, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had died. Although he did not enter the temple of the Lord, but still the people acted corruptly. So Jotham's reign began in 750 BC. So it overlapped Uzziah's uh, reign for about, uh, by about 11 years till Uzziah died in 739 BC. Because of Uzziah's leprosy in the last years of his life. But Jotham also co-reigned, that is, he reigned at the same time with his son for four years, from 735 to 731 B.C. So that the reference to his length of, uh, of reign as 16 years here in chapter 27, verse 8, doesn't include that period, that four-year period. So his dates uh, as principal ruler were the 16-year period of 750 to 735. 735. So Jotham's 16 years reign started 11 years before Uzziah died, which suggests that Uzziah had leprosy for, for more than a decade before he died. Now, Jotham was a good king most of the time. But his people, that wasn't the case. They stayed corrupt, as they had been during his father Uzziah's reign. Now, the high places were not removed the people still sacrificed and burned scents on the high places. And we see that in Second Kings 15.35. And sometimes those that you lead won't always follow your example. And here we have a father and son example. And, and you know, we all you know who are parents and have that situation know how heartbreaking that is. But here's the thing. It shouldn't affect you and the way that you live for God. This sinfulness of Jotham's kingdom is clearly described in Isaiah chapters 1 through 5. Let's look at verse 3 now. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, and he built extensively on the wall of Ophel. Now, the upper gate connected the temple and the royal palace. We saw that in chapter 23, verse 20. Jotham repaired or rebuilt it. Ophel was the original Jebusite area of Jerusalem. And its, its walls dated back hundreds of years and must have required regular upkeep, you know, repairs and all. Look at verse 4. And it says, Moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah, and in the forests he built fortresses and towers. Cities, fortresses, and towers were from the earliest days, the kings of Judah. Uh, and they had built places of defense and storage places for storing food and supplies. And in Jotham's time, the Assyrians and other potential enemies were becoming a threat. So these buildings were necessary. Now, verses 5 through 9. He, again, this is speaking of Jotham. He also fought with the king of the Ammonites and defeated them. And the people of Ammon gave him in that year 100 talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat, and 10,000 of barley. The people of Ammon paid this to him in the second and third years also. So Jotham became mighty, and here's why. Because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his wars and his ways, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. So Jotham rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. Uzziah had brought the Ammonite people down. He had reduced them to a position of really financial support, really paying taxes. But it seems that they had broken free from Jotham, so he took control and forced these new taxes on them. Where it says in the second and third years, it means that after three years, that tribute ended. They're they're paying these taxes ended, suggesting that Ammon got their independence back again. But for now, they're required to pay talents of silver that were equaled about uh, 100 talents of silver that equaled about three and three-quarter tons, 10,000 cores of wheat, which is about 62,000 bushels, and 10,000 cores of barley. They did this for three consecutive years, and after that time, the burden may have been lessened on these people. The rest of Jotham's affairs, we read here, uh, including his wars and other activities, could be found in the records of the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And some of them may have been preserved in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. Now let's look at chapter 28 now as his son Ahaz begins to reign. Now Jotham is gone. His son Ahaz comes to the throne. Trouble is now on the way. Jotham has died. His son Ahaz is now king. Ahaz is a bad king. He's not doing what's right before the Lord. So you know that the story of his reign is going to be disaster. And it's going to end, and it's not going to end well. Okay, and it's not going to end well uh, because the most important part of any man's life is his relationship to God, which he didn't have. Chapter 28 tells us about the evil that Ahaz did. Now, what we see here in chapter 28 ahaz being evil this is something that happens often sometimes this evil happens to a nation and and if america doesn't change this direction i think that you know we're, we're going to see some you know, if, if the lord tarries we're going to see some of those uh, judgments upon this nation sometimes this evil happens to the church there's a sudden departure from the passion that it once had and, and you know it becomes cold, and, and it doesn't do anything. Sometimes it happens to a family. This evil comes to a family when a godly, loving parent is followed by an immoral and mischievous child, like the example that we have here, who Ahaz, has you know an ungodly uh, child you know takes after uh, you know comes to the throne after his godly father is gone. Sometimes this evil happens in an individual, a man who appears to be godly or a woman godly and zealous, they worship regularly, they're, they're, they're heavily involved in the church, then all of a sudden something happens. And, and we've seen it over the years. They back off, you know, they leave their convictions and their moral principles and they become rebellious and they're, they're living to hurt and destroy everything that they seem to love. And they worked so hard for to encourage and to promote why why does it happen well again because of sin that's the underlying reason because of one unguarded moment because one hasn't watched and prayed they haven't taken heed to the word of god also the fickleness of man some more than others jesus said in matthew eleven sixteen through 19 he said what can i compare this generation to and again, this, this was, uh, again, what he was saying because they wouldn't receive the gospel. He says, it's like children playing a game in the public square. They complained to their friends. We played wedding songs and you didn't dance. So we changed it and played funeral songs and you didn't mourn. For John did not spend his time eating and drinking and you said he's possessed by a demon. Jesus, on the other hand, feasts and drinks and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Some of those who refused to believe the gospel covered their unbelief with criticism. This is what Jesus is telling us here. Jesus compared them here to foolish children who sat in the public, uh, public square, who complained about everything the other children did. They're like a lot of people today who find fault with whatever their preacher and other church leaders do. It doesn't matter what's said or done. These kind of people pick it apart and they use the objection whether uh, or not uh, it's justified as an excuse for rejection because they have no saving relationship to Christ. They refuse to recognize or receive his truth to serve in his church, but they love to just sit and, and and harp against both the children here. Jesus said they played with each other in the marketplace with their, where their parents would sell and buy or they would visit. That was what they would do in the public square. There were two games that were popular that children liked to play. One was wedding and one was fu- funeral. Those were the most popular. Weddings and funer- funerals were the two major social events and children liked to imitate their elders by, again, doing mock weddings or funerals. Weddings involved cheerful music and, and dancing. And when the children played the wedding game, they expected everybody to dance when the imaginary flute was played just like grown ups did in the real ceremony. In the same way, when they played the funeral game, they expected everyone to mourn and to wail when the imaginary funeral song was played, just like uh, the paid mourners did when a a person actually died. But there were always those who wouldn't go along with the rest of the children. If the game was wedding, we don't want to play wedding. We want to play funeral. If the game was funeral, we don't want to play funeral. We want to play wedding. So nothing the other children did made them happy. They were complaining, they were always party poopers who just, who, you know, they kind of just stand there and cross their arms and, and pout and say, uh, I don't want to play. It doesn't matter, didn't matter what their friends did. But then there's other men that are constant and faithful and loyal to the end. Some of the other things that bring evil is the lack of wisdom and superficial godliness or morality. These are other reasons for men's evil. So let's begin with chapter 8 now in verse 1, and it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father, David, has done. And when he says his father, he means his ancestor, David. Ahaz's reign of 16 years could mean that he came to the throne about four years, and we already talked about this, after the 16-year reign of his father, Jotham. Look at verses 2 through 4. For he, Ahaz, walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. The valley of the son of Hinnom... Mentioned there in verse 3 was just outside the western wall of Jerusalem. And it was a dumping ground for all the cities, all kinds of garbage and trash. Most of it was burned. The valley itself became a symbol of impurity. And it was used as a site of pagan worship, including human sacrifice. The abominations of the nations in verse 3. They were the worshippers of the Ammonite god Molech. Which involved the practice of human and child sacrifice. Every green tree mentioned in verse 4 speaks of Canaanite nature cults that focused on evergreens, probably because they were symbols of of, of perpetual fertility. Now imagine the depraved evil of a religion, a worship that sacrificed young children. God allowed the nation to be conquered because of Ahaz's evil practices. But even today, that practice still goes on stronger than ever. What a warning to our nation. And we saw this goofy California governor who invited all the women to come to California to get their abortions. I mean, what we see going on in our nation should really be alarming, to, especially to Christians. Sacrificing children to the heartless gods of convenience... Economy and whim. It continues to go on in numbers that I think would even shock this evil King Ahaz. In a recent article in the Christian Post, it said this, over 40% of women who had an abortion say they were frequent churchgoers at the time they ended their pregnancies, and about a half of them uh, say they kept their abortions hidden from church members, uh, a new life way research shows. In a survey that was sponsored by the Pregnancy Center Support Group organization CareNet, researchers from the Christian Research Group Lifeway found that about 70% of women who had an abortion self identified as Christians, while 43% say they attended a Christian church at least once a month or more at the time they aborted their child. The survey, which interviewed 1,038 respondents who've all had abortions, found that 20% of the respondents attended church at least once a week at the time of their first pregnancy termination. 6% said they attended church more than once per week, while about 54% said they rarely or never attended a church. As a majority, Christian churches do not support aborting a child. Only 7% of women say they discuss their abortion decisions with anyone at the church, while 52% said no one at their church knew about their abortion. Additionally, 76% of them say that the church had no influence on their decision to go through with abortion. And this is not meant to be condemning. It's meant to be information. Again, if it's, if it's happened to, to, to ladies and, they're, and they've asked the Lord, for they're forgiven. But again, it's to show that, that, that this is still going on today. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them to come to me. That, that means in order to carry out Christ's command, to allow children to come to him, guess what? We have to first let them come into this world. King Ahaz went totally into idolatry and he took the southern kingdom of Judah with him. And as a result, God allows Syria and Israel to invade his nation and his people. Verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the Lord God, notice, his God, therefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria and they defeated him and carried away a great multitude of them as captives and brought them to, be, to Damascus Then he was to, and then he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel who defeated him with a great slaughter verse 6 for Pekah the son of Ramalia killed 120,000 in Judah in one day all valiant men because here it is they had forsaken the Lord God of their father Zikri. A mighty man of Ephraim killed Maasaiah, the king's son. Azricam, the officer over the house, and Elkanah, who was second to the king, and the children of Israel carried away captive of their brethren 200,000 women, sons, and daughters. And they also took away much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. So we see here that Syria comes down, and for the first time the wall is broken through into the southern kingdom of Judah. Many are taken prisoner. And the sad part is, is that the northern kingdom, Israel, joined with Syria in this attack. So we find that many who were taken prisoner actually became prisoners of Israel. Again, which was the northern kingdom. They were brothers, Judah and Israel, at war with one another. Israel took men of Judah and into captivity, and God makes it crystal clear why they were slaughtered. Notice he says in verse 6, because they had abandoned the Lord God of their ancestors. And then in verses 7 through 8, this is the sad situation of the kingdom. God let this happen because Ahaz and the people had plunged headfirst into idolatry. And so as a result, God sends a prophet now to Israel to talk to them about their extreme cruelty to their brethren. Look at verses 9 through 15 now. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. And he went out before the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Look, because the Lord God of your fathers was angry with Judah, he has delivered them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that reaches up to heaven. In other other words, they went a little further in their cruelty. Verse 10. And now you propose to force the children of Judah and Jerusalem to be your male and female slaves. But are you not also guilty before the Lord your God? Now hear me, the prophet said, therefore, and return the captives whom you have taken captive from your brethren, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. Then some of the heads of the children of Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Johanan, Barakiah, the son of Meshilamoth, Jehizakiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Hadley, stood up against those who came from the war. And he said to them, you shall not bring the captives here, for we already have offended the Lord. "...you intend to add, our sin, add to our sins and to our guilt, for our guilt is great and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the leaders and all the assembly." Then the men who were designated by name rose up and took the captives and from the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them, dressed them and gave them sandals, gave them food and drink and anointed them and they let all the feeble ones ride on donkeys. So they brought them to their brethren at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria at the, uh, at the same time uh, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Syria to help, to help him. Here we have In verses 9 through 15, a great example of these men who had just caused a lot of suffering, showing great compassion for these men that they caused a lot of suffering to. Now, in this, we have a picture of, number one, God's mercy mixed in with God's punishment. It's clear to see that the people of Judah, their defeat was brought upon themselves because they seriously sinned against the Lord. But Jesus, there was a point where Israel went too far. And it was at that point that God's mercy stepped in and says to the cruel attacker, Israel, hey, don't, don't go any further. Don't take this any further than you need to. God sends judgment. But in wrath, Habakkuk 3.2 says, he remembers mercy. God sends the sickness that brings the pain and the weakness, but at a certain point, he also sends the remedy and the restoration in Job five seventeen and 18, it says this, But consider the joy of those corrected by God. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty when you sin, because though He wounds, He also bandages, He strikes, but His hands also heal. You see, God brings upon the guilty the strong wrath that they give out. But God raises up the compassionate and the considerate to visit the prisoner, or the lonely, uh, the lonely with friendly words, and, and kindness again and cheer he defeats and he humiliates the strong and the rebellious kingdom but he causes it to rise again to power and to be productive again god bruises but he doesn't shatter he puts down but he raises up we also see in these picture this picture in verses 9 through 15 faithfulness and service oh the prophet had a tough and dangerous job to do here he had a message to give to the people But he did it and he carried it out honorably there in verses 9 through 11. He didn't back away from the strong words of condemnation that he had to deliver to the people. He didn't back off from telling them what they needed to hear. He gave them the right counsel. No man or woman is qualified to be in a position of trust and honor unless they are prepared at times to say and to do what's likely to be be resented or rejected we're obligated we're expected by God to say things that aren't pleasing and to confront to confront because we're de- uh, you know and, and, and you know if we're, if we're not ready to confront you know if we're not ready to, to confront people and, and uh, if they don't even if they don't like it and they don't approve what we have to say if we're not ready to do that we'd better back off now And we better do something else because we're definitely not qualified to speak for God. Third thing we see in verses 9 through 15 is human influence. And we have two examples of man's influence being exercised here, you know, again, with great success. We have the outspoken prophet Oded who persuades the leaders. And then the leaders persuaded the soldiers to let the prisoners go and to give up the spoil that they had just taken from the battle. Now, this was really an amazing thing because to persuade men who are excited about their victory and especially to give up the spoils that they just took from the war that they just won, that was a huge accomplishment. And it shows what effect a man of influence can have on the human heart. And it's always well worth it to step in between people. To step in between men and the wrong that they're thinking about doing. Because you you might save them from doing something terrible and from experiencing terrible guilt, guilt. And you might spare others from a lot of suffering. Also, we have to be totally honest. And we are not to be afraid to speak honestly. Like the prophet and the leaders did here. Or else we won't succeed. We have to speak with confidence and we have to speak with conviction. Knowing that what we're saying is right because it's God's word. And we're to have no doubt at all about what needs to be done. We also see in verses 9 through 15, in, in this uh, human compassion, is human mercy. Instead of slaughtering their prisoners, which, is that, which was at that time often the thing that they did, and they didn't think twice about it, and there was, they didn't have any feeling, there, there was no remorse when they did it. We see that these soldiers of Israel showed all the kindness that they could to them in verse 15. And the scene here in verse 15 is a picture of the words of, of Solomon in Proverbs twenty five twenty one. He said, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And it's our duty to show the same spirit that was shown here in verse 15. Every chance we get. We should spare those if we have the power to do so. Wherever or whatever area it might be in, we should spare our enemy when he's down. Saving from the miseries and, and again, the humiliation of being defeated. To help him again to get, gain his self-respect and his honor. Like these Israelites, dear, did here in verse 15. It's to do no less than Jesus requires of us at all times and under every circumstance when he said to love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, finishing up with verses 16, uh, or looking at verses 16 through 19. At the same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. For again, the Edomites had come, uh, attacked Judah and carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowland and of the south of Judah. And he had taken Beth Shemesh, Ejelon, Gedaroth, As- Asalko Asauko with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they dwelt there. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz king of Israel for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Also Tiglath-Pileser king of Assyria came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. For Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king, and from the leaders and gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. Ahaz was a huge lawbreaker. And as you could guess, he suffered for it. And he suffered dearly for it. He received blow after blow from the Lord, who was teaching his people the ways of, of the wisdom of God. We read first in verse 5 that, that King Rezin of Syria defeated him, and he took many prisoners to Damascus. And then in verse 6, we see then came King Pekah, of Israel and cold blood slaughtered his army. And then in verse 17, the Edomites attacked Judah and took the usual spoil. And then in verse 18, the Philistines invaded the south of Judah and took many important places. These things happened one wave after another to Ahaz. And we read that the Lord brought Judah low. That is, the Lord humbled Judah. Why? Because of Ahaz. One blow after another fell until the land was totally wiped out and they didn't have any protection from its enemies. We're reminded by these repeated blows of the accumulating penalty that sin always pays. And this often comes in in ways of recognizable losses. We can see the losses, but we don't uh, um, see them as God's judgments. The sinner who doesn't fear God or doesn't care about his fellow man is asking for a whole lot of trouble. And when it comes, he just thinks it's a stroke of bad luck. He just thinks it's a misfortune. And he doesn't recognize, he doesn't know that they're judgments from God. He loses the confidence and the respect of his neighbors. Then he loses his business and the support he had. And as a result, he loses his money. Then he loses his possessions and then he loses his health and his spirit. He gets bummed out. And that, when that happens, he loses hope. So step by step, down he goes until he, like Judah, is brought low and made naked before the Lord. Or reminded from these blows of the punishment that might come in the way of inward and spiritual decline. We don't know in what order these things will happen to us because it's different with every person, but blow after blow comes and one after another has taken down Somebody until there's nothing left of them. Truthfulness might go first. Then maybe the spirit of reverence. Then maybe what's doing right. Then maybe the loss of purity. Then you might get into the place where you just don't care about what's right and wrong. And then self-respect goes. And after that, what do you have? There's nothing left. But we need to know this. If we harden ourselves against God like King Ahaz did and decide to go our own stubborn and sinful way, even if you seem like you're prospering, there is coming down upon your spiritual nature, upon you, if not on your circumstances, blow after blow of righteous punishment. Blows that are crushing and devastating. And if you don't repent, you will surely perish. The many sorrows that the righteous sometimes suffer, they have to endure. There are many sorrows that righteousness sometimes has to endure. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And they come to those who are patient like Job. They come to the faithful like Jeremiah. They come to the devoted like Paul. They come to the obedient like Jesus. Many sorrows come, will come, and they'll come strong. And they come even to the godliest of people, the godliest the godliness of Christians. We're not immune to, to, the, to, these, to these afflictions that God brings. And they come for a purpose. Many times we don't understand it, many times they hurt, they're inconvenient, they're costly. But in the infinite wisdom of God, he knows why we need to go through them. Blow after blow falls on them. We're not immune. What does it all mean? It simply means that God loves you. It means that the branch that's bearing fruit is being pruned by the Lord so that it does what? So that it may bear much fruit. John fifteen eight. It means that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Why? So that he can make him holy. As God is holy. It means that the Lord is refining and cultivating his servant. And that God is preparing him or her for a larger and higher level of heavenly work. After this. This life. After this life. It means that affliction is working out an exceeding weight of glory. Verses 20-27. through Also Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. For Ahaz took part of the treasures from the house of the Lord, from the house of the king and from the leaders. And he gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help him. Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly, notice, unfaithful to the Lord. Instead of seeing what God has done and repenting, he continues to increase in his unfaithfulness. This is that King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God. Notice what he does. He shuts up the doors of the house of the Lord and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoke to anger the Lord God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all of his ways from first to last, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Ahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Ahaz's life shows us where sin will lead you, where it will leave you and its end result when it's done with you. It led this, this sinful life, this unfaithfulness of Ahab. Ahaz, it led him to bribery. In verse 21, we see that he robbed the palace and he even stole from the temple in order to bribe the king of Assyria to help him, but it, it, he didn't help him. Instead of Ahaz going to the house of the Lord as a servant of God and praying to God to get his help, he went to a man. He stole and he blasphemed God in order to get a man's help who later deceived him and ripped him off, verse 21 says. The psalmist says in Psalm thirty-three, sixteen: No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. Psalm 60, 11 through 12. Give us help from trouble for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly because it is he, God, who shall tread down our enemies. By simple godliness and integrity, King Ahaz might have gotten God's help. God never fails his people. But Ahaz's behavior was total foolishness. He neglected the one way, that is going through the one door that was wide open to him, that would, would have, that, that would have, he would have surely succeeded. Instead, he accepted a plan that was full of evil and was likely to end like it did in failure. Psalm fourteen twelve says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And then Ahaz drives the final nail into his coffin of foolishness when he worshiped the gods that defeated him. Verse 23 says, Ahaz abandoned the Lord and he robbed from the Lord. He closed down the worship in the temple. And in their place, in the place of the temple, he establishes a pagan worship center or pagan worship centers all through Jerusalem and the entire land. You see, this is the road that sin will lead you down. Sin leads downward to this kind of foolishness. It leads people to look look for their joy in the poorest and most unsatisfying things. It leads people to pursue wisdom and wealth in places where there's emptiness and poverty. That's all you get. Sin leads men to forget about the fountain of living waters, which is the source of all. It makes you forget about truth and wisdom of all excellence and joy, sin trashes your life, and it leaves you with miserable failures, God says in Isaiah 55, 1 and 3, is anyone thirsty, come and drink, even if you have no money, come, take your choice of wine or milk, it's all free, why spend your money on food that does not give you strength, why pay for food that does you no good, God says, listen to me, And you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. We also see that sin leads you down the road to defiance. By what Ahaz did, he couldn't have defied the Lord in any worse way. This was the God who he was taught and trained to worship. What he did was an act of ungodly self-assurance and offensive defiance that could only be the result of a guilty and stubborn spirit. He must have resented what God did and decided to do all that he possibly could to defy the authority of God. Men defy and disobey the God that made them. The God whose breath is in their lungs and who holds their heart in his hand and in whose power they stand. Now, they might deny that he exists, and they might make fun at his judgments and at his final condemnation of their life. They might speak arrogantly and disrespectfully about God's power and about his rule. But you know what? In the end, God is going to have the final say. Sin will lead you as an end result to death. And it's not surprising that Ahaz died early and shamefully, according to verse 27. They didn't bury him with the rest of the, of, of the godly kings. The ruin that he brought to his country and the stress that he might, must have gone through living an ungodly life is enough to cause death, an early death for anyone. And the people, they refused to bury him with honors, which was the normal thing to do for a good king. So sin, when it's finished, it results in dishonor and it results in death. As Paul said, the wages of sin is death. It results in physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. This is sin's wages. If you're walking down the road of sin, notice in the story with Ahaz here that the end that you're heading for. But on the other hand, Everybody who will turn from their sins and who will turn from the attraction that that, that sin draws them to and they break away from it, from its corrupting power, and they accept the greatest gift of God, which was Jesus Christ, then eternal life is yours. It's wide open to you. Father, we thank you for, again, your word. Father, we thank you. Or these two examples, Lord, of, of a man who followed you, Lord, and you blessed him because he prepared his heart before you. And a man who you brought low because he forsook you. And may we learn from both of these men. One, what to do, and the other, what not to do. And Father, I pray that this evening, Lord, that we are all in that right place. In our relationship with you, and that we're on the right road to glory, to eternity. And that Father, we wouldn't look to the left or to the right. And that Father, we wouldn't be complacent in our walk and in our relationship with you, God. Lord, that we would understand that again, Lord, you don't you don't tolerate sin. And if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that is, they've never received you as their Savior and your forgiveness of sins, we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would open their hearts and their minds. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then as we, as we sing, you get up out of your seat, you make your way down the aisle toward the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray a prayer of faith together.